Welcome to Pivot and Thrive. This is your host, Kim Shea. It is February 3rd, 2023. And today I'm talking to Dr. Dara, Dara Abraham. She is going to talk to us about ADHD and I suppose ADD. If there's a difference, we'll learn about that too. And um, I'm talking to her about it because somebody suggested to me that I had it. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. I never heard that before. So I figured she would know. And I don't know if you have noticed like me that that is all over the internet right now. And uh, so I'd like to hear what she has to say about this problem that is suddenly a really, really pervasive problem. So welcome, Dr. Dara, to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I looked up today just to see do I have ADHD? And it was endless, the number of places where I could get tested online for ADHD. And I figure that's probably not the best way to go find out. And, and I'm just wondering for people in middle age, if you can help us understand more about this disorder and um, what we need to know. Yeah, so it is such an interesting, hot topic right now. Um, you're correct that there is a lot of information on TikTok, Instagram, and just in the news in general. So to start off with, ADHD is not a disorder that you acquire. You don't acquire it at some point in your life, meaning in your 30s, 40s, 50s. Unfortunately, ADHD was not a disorder that was diagnosed readily back, you know, when you were younger, even when I was younger, um, you know. So it really just was not something that was even thought about in females, let alone in a kid who was inattentive. It was really only thought about in hyperactive, impulsive little boys. And so okay. that said, it took a while. There's a something called the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Manual of All Psychiatric Disorders. And throughout the years, it's changed, and that's why you may have brought up that idea of ADHD, ADD. It used to be separate, where we separated the inattentive type from the hyperactive impulsive. Nowadays, just because it's confusing, it's all called ADHD. And then we label it either predominantly inattentive, predominantly hyperactive impulsive, or combined. And most people do have combined. So with that said, back then, you know, usually females were really not picked up on. All that came up was maybe some learning disorder. Because if you can't pay attention that well and you can't focus, you're maybe not going to do that great, you know, in your studies. However, there's many folks, especially women, you know, of that era and continue that, you know, we're so we're highly intelligent, we're anxious, we're people pleasing. So, you know, our society really expects, you know, especially it's engendered in terms of the women are the, the little girls are expected to have, you know, the proper manners and etiquette even earlier than men. And so a lot of that, a lot of the deficiencies of ADHD, especially the inattentive symptoms, were masked. And they were masked by just compensating for these deficits. So if they had trouble focusing in school, they may just spend extra time studying at night. If they had trouble paying attention to the teacher, they would maybe kind of ask their neighbor or review something or, you know, kind of whatever it took to really still manage their life and their time. So, you know, fast forward, you know, some years and, you know, someone goes off to college and gets married, has a baby, all these different life transitions. And depending on what else goes on, sometimes those compensatory, compensatory strategies no longer work. 
And so it looks like it came out of the woodwork, especially during the pandemic when people had to kind of, you know, all of a sudden have more responsibility of taking care of young kids or even, you know, working from home with their husbands where they were in a confined apartment and they've never done that before. And all of a sudden it seemed like it was hard to pay attention, hard to focus, hard to organize. And then basically it was just that the the structure and the strategies that they had used for the past 30 years were low, were no longer working. Okay, interesting. Um, so what about these online tests? Is that a good place to go? I think it figure is. Figure out if you have it? Okay. It is. Okay. There is a test that's the adult. Um, there is a test that you'll see, and it's a self-report. And it really does go through. It's not the best, but it does go through a lot of the symptoms there are some other online tests, but there is um, one of the inner one of the um, foundations called Absart is actually in the process process of coming up with adult ADHD guidelines, and that's really exciting because it's going to be coming out in the next year, and so this is really going to help clinicians appropriately and you know, really um, make sure that everyone is getting the same type of assessment, diagnosis, and at least okay. on the same wavelength of prescribing. Okay. So you just mentioned prescribing. So uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you is what do we do about it if we feel like this applies to us? Yeah. And, um, so is it, is it meds or what? Like, yeah. Is it? So I would say, number one, if you're you know, if all of a sudden you're in, you know, your 50s, 60s, 70s, and you feel like it's starting to affect at least two areas of your life. So meaning your your home life, maybe you're really just not getting along with your spouse, work is just falling through, you know, your projects are not getting done, or interpersonally, you haven't connected with others, friends, family members, then it's time to seek help. And maybe not just evaluate and kind of fill out a screening test, but really seek out either I would say an assessment by a psychologist or even a psychiatrist who can really fully do a clinical assessment and determine if that's what's going on. Once you figure that out, it's whether or not, you know, what what treatments you want to start with. The most effective and usually the first line treatment for any age, regardless of how old you are, is medication. It's 80% effect, 80 to 90% effective, and the first line is stimulants. So for my folks who are older than 55 and anyone under 55 who's had any family history of any heart disease, I'll have them get screened and make sure that their heart's okay, their labs are okay, and then there's no reason why we can't treat ADHD with first-line treatment, which is medications, which is stimulants like Adderall and Ritalin, and kind of knowing that you know, we're going to go slower. Maybe if someone has some other comorbidity um, medical diseases, such as like hypertension, but that's also not a reason not to treat. As long as the hyper high blood pressure is well controlled, I still want to treat that ADHD. And something that's really important for women is that, you know, ADHD affects women throughout, you know, someone's lifespan. And during premenopause and during and after menopause, the estrogen slowly is decreasing relative to the other sex hormones, and then it's much lower. And estrogen is actually directly related to the amount of dopamine, which is what you're missing 
which is a chemical in the brain that you need for alertness, for for memory, working memory, for initiation of tasks, for completion, for struct, for sequencing things, prioritizing. And so someone with a longstanding history of ADHD may all of a sudden, and who has not been, does not know that, never been formally diagnosed or even brought to their attention, may start to notice that their cognitive symptoms are getting much worse. And that can kind of be, you know, confusing and be concerning for maybe some, you know, cognitive deficiencies, early dementia, things like that. And so that's one yeah. reason to really make sure that you're seeking this out before it gets to that point. Regardless, and there are people that who don't want first line treatment, which is meds, and that's okay. And the other types of treatment are executive skills um, training and coaching. So that's something you can do working on, you know, really learning to prioritize, to plan, to organize, to self-regulate, regulate your emotions, which is another another you know symptom of ADHD that really comes up in women that's not well recognized. And then the last thing is, or the second to last thing is something called cognitive behavioral therapy. So not just learning the skills that you need that you may be struggling with, you know, some of those planning and what's part of the frontal cortex of the, you know, those executive functions, but also the the CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that really is working on the, you know, those negative, those anxious emotions that surround this. So when you've lived your life not knowing that you had ADHD and all of a sudden someone, you know, mentions it casually, you start to realize that a lot of the things that you may have brushed off as character flaws or just quirks are actually just part of your brain chemistry. And some of the things you may like and you find them really helpful. Others you may be, you know, not so fond of. But either way, they're not your choice. They're involuntary. They're your chemistry. And so I think that awareness also comes with some grief, some Oh, if I only had had this, if I had known, I would have done this differently or I wouldn't have reacted. And so that's what really needs to be processed in a therapy type of environment. So you can do coaching and therapy together. You can separate them. I have a lot of older folks who love um, the, you know, the group therapy type of ADHD. So it's like skills and some CBT since it's really useful, it's really easy to access uh, online, a lot of them, and they really start to relate to other folks, even if they're not all the same age that have struggled with, you know, a lifetime of a or a late diagnosis. Okay, this is, is very interesting. I had not even thought about the fact that there might be somebody who's starting to have some memory issues and automatically chalking it up to dementia or early onset dementia that it could be something else. Yeah. It's definitely important to go get that checked out. Exactly. Okay. And then what about medication? Um, I have a son who has ADHD and he takes medication when he needs it, when he's got homework he's really got to do or um, a, a test he's got, he really needs it to focus. And I, a lot of people, when they found out he was taking medication, were saying, oh, you, you shouldn't do that. You should be trying everything else but that. But my feeling was it leveled the playing field where he was able to now be like everybody else and pay attention and get his work done. It wasn't a matter of trying to handicap him in any way or um, cheat him out of some other treatment. How do you have that problem where a lot of people just are really resistant yes. to medication? And if so, if you feel they need it, how do you, how do you counsel? Yeah, that? no, that's such a great question. How old was your son when he started medication? 
That was about 13. He got into middle school and he was starting to notice. I, I'd okay. heard before, he looks out the window, he's not paying attention. But when he got to middle school, he said, I can tell I am not, I'm not able to do what the other kids are doing. That's, yeah. Yeah. Me. And so that's even late, you know, even though I'm sure you thought it was pretty early to start your son on medication. But I think that unfortunately, it's just the lack of, you know, um, knowledge, the lack of education surrounding childhood ADHD, adult ADHD, and not just from, you know, the public and lay people, but also from clinicians, from psychologists, from psychiatrists. Unfortunately, we in medical school, you know, plus residency psychiatry training probably have had maybe only one or two lectures, if that, on ADHD. And so mm-hmm. there is this fear that if when you don't know something and then the first line treatment is a controlled substance, there's a lot of fear that surrounds it. And so I think that fear, well, the, the studies show that fear is completely unfounded. It is actually much more unsafe not to treat a child. Actually, starting at six, it is completely safe. They've been around these medicines, methylphenidate, which is the Ritalin class, and amphetamine, which is the Adderall. And every drug falls into one of these categories. But these meds have been around for like 100 years. They have no... There's no harm. There's no cardiovascular study study or harm that has is shown in the studies. There's actually the growth is completely the same in terms of kids taking the medication. There can be some appetite issues, and that just means that yeah. the, the you know the kid has to be monitored. And a lot of times these kids really complain that they don't feel right, and usually that's either you know they're overdosed, meaning they're just on too high of a dose, and they can either complain of feeling like a zombie. That actually, or they just aren't are flat. That means it's too high of a dose. It's basically taking those those hyperactive impulsive symptoms and slowing them down too much. Or they can complain okay. this is less likely at a, you know when they're young, but when they're 13, they still can feel like they're maybe they had like 10 cups of you know some coffee if they're already drinking coffee. Basically, it's called Starbucks syndrome, and so that's basically working too hard on the inattentive symptoms. And so the, what I really say to people, especially I have a lot of folks who ask me, I don't, I really see 14 and above, but even that age, it's scary to start their child on a medication. And what I say is, you know, it's really, you know, would you, number one, would you consider not taking your son or daughter to get their glasses, to get their eyes checked? It's the same idea, right? If they're not 2020, why are we not going to correct this? Why aren't exactly what you said, bring them back to that le- that level playing field and not that let them live a life of feeling inferior or having to work harder. And then I may have pushed back, but they haven't, they're still doing really well in school. They're doing this. And I'm like, all right, how much time goes into that doing well in school? Are you sure that it's, you know, is there, it comes at a cost and that cost can be hidden. And I think that especially, you know, it's very genetic. So if a child has it, the parents have it, and they, or one of them may have it, you know, 50 to, the statistic is now like 50 to 70% of at least one of the parents may have it, or grandparent. And so they may chalk it up as, well, I was like that, and I got by. That's great, but, you know, my kids, you know, are wearing, you know, or were in, you know, car seats, and I wasn't. You know, things change. You know, yeah. at times we, we realize more with medicine and with other things, and then we have to adapt. And so then I also explain the statistic, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call it the scare tactic, but it kind of is of, you know, what this, how serious it can be for a teenager 
to not be treated for ADHD when they start driving. I mean, the motor vehicle accident rate is so much higher and it is one of, you know, it's one of the higher, you know, rates of, you know, death in a child can be from accidents like that. So if anything else, just for safety purposes. And also the biggest concern I would say from this, from teens or kids is, well, I don't want to, I don't want them to get, you know, addicted. I don't want them to this to lead to other drugs. And all of the studies have proven that not only does it not cause a child or adolescent to become addicted, but it actually does the opposite. It prevents, it actually helps to prevent them to self-medicate due to these symptoms. Mm. Yeah, which I know people can do as as teens or adults, really, just to try and cope with it. Yeah. Because it's an unpleasant, an unpleasant feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's interesting that you say that a guideline is going to be coming out to help clinicians understand this more because I know with my son when he goes it's it can be hard to get in to see a psychiatrist as I'm sure you well know there there aren't enough of them and they're all booked and it can take a long time so for him when he was starting college last year or three years ago but now he's going to a university he said I really have to have these meds well his doctor is like oh but you're such a nice young man I'd hate to see you get addicted to Know, methamphetamines. And it's like, it doesn't do the same thing for him as it would for somebody else who's taking it, but he needs this. And it's such a big deal to get somebody to prescribe it. And so there does seem like maybe there's not as much understanding yes. of what ADHD is and really all mental health. Yes. But ADHD problems, is you know, especially. You, just, you, can't get, you can't get help for it, probably because of the nature of the drug. Of the course. And that is such a yeah. good point that, so for someone who has ADHD, when you take too much, you actually feel sick, right? You don't feel good. Mm. Yes, there are people who, you know, college age or other ages, especially that age group, who will abuse it to get a high. But more often than not, the the college age students who are using someone else's medication, number one, actually may have undiagnosed ADHD. And then the second thing is that they may actually just be using it to have some sort of, you know, up on their, you know, their um, performance since we live in such a performance centered society these days. And that won't work for a non-ADHD brain. If they're using it to get ahead and they don't have ADHD, it's not going to do a thing. So it's, so there's, so, you know, if you look at the statistics, it's not as common that they're just using it for recreation. And when you look at it, it's usually the, you know, hate to stereotype, but this, the fraternity, you know, young white males who are using it just who have maybe, you know, some sort of underlying alcohol use issue as well, and are using it to really just be able to drink more. So, but most, a lot of the other college students are undiagnosed or, or are just really anxious and trying to get their studies done. Okay. Yeah, I, I think, and you've, I'm sure you've noticed this too, there's just a real stigma with mental health issues in general. And so people don't want to talk about it. They don't want their kids to take anything because then that, I think, somehow confirms that there's something wrong. And then they don't want to do anything for it either. And they don't want anybody else to know that their child has something. I feel it's better to just say, I have a son who has ADHD and I have another son who has OCD. And I'm very open about it because let's there's nothing wrong. There's nothing shameful about it. No. It's just their condition. If if they had chronic bronchitis or, um, uh, you know, I can't think of anything, any other childhood disease, I would certainly be open about this, what my child has, because I want 
there to be some compassion for it when it's necessary. When I need you to understand what's going on here, here's why. Yes. And unfortunately, there's such a stigma. I mean, I have adult ADHD myself. I wasn't diagnosed until my 30s. And I'm always kidding around with my husband now, thinking about which one of my children has it or both or one or all the symptoms. And, you know, I'll be the first to say that, you know, I really will, you know, what, what, what I preach is how I would really react in my, you know, with my own children, meaning the first symptoms that become impairing of anything, whether it's anxiety or ADHD, which both run in my family, you know, I'm going to acknowledge it and realize that, you know, if only I had had that acknowledgement and not, not blaming my parents or my teachers, but it was a different time. But knowing that the more that we try to cover this up, the more that we engage this level of embarrassment and shame and stigma that comes with it, you know, the the worst it's going to be for our future generations. And it's not going to go away. Yeah, it's tough. I hope that that will change as time goes by. So, So you said you had it and then here you are a doctor. So, I mean, that must have been... Was that was that hard or is that just that was just the way you, well, you lived yeah. and you studied harder and I didn't go? know. I didn't know. I always just knew that something was like different. I always knew that I had to like study harder or like it was really hard to memorize. That's also what I found out later is something called we have uh when you have ADHD, you have a poor, usually have a poor working memory. So that's the ability to hold on to information while you do something else. So if you think about it, every time you take a test, you have to use information in your head, and then you actually have to manipulate it to answer the question, whether it's multiple choice or essay. And so I just always felt this need to kind of, you know, study harder, be more prepared. It also was a combination of that plus my anxiety. And I always was, it was always chalked up to being too anxious or being too um, perfectionistic. Not in, I would say in my early twenties, I had seen a psychologist and a psychiatrist who at the time mentioned the idea of not just anxiety, but also ADHD. And I, I don't think I even gave it much of a thought. I almost, I just brushed it off as he doesn't really know me. Um, there's no way I have, you know, I, you know, had a three, eight undergrad. I was, I think, applying to medical school. You know, I, at the time I just didn't even, I wasn't even aware that you could be successful when it comes to grades and school and, and still have ADHD. And it wasn't until I was, you know, I struggled a lot during medical school. You know, you're put with a lot of high achieving folks who don't, a lot of them do not have ADHD. Some do, but most don't. And so that's when I really noticed that something was not right. But still, I just kept plugging away. And it wasn't until during after residency that I finally, you know, sought out further treatment and confirmed that it really was there and it was there all along. And once I got treated, you know, not that my anxiety went away, that was still there, meaning usually ADHD does not exist in a vacuum. But I will say that just the the understanding, my self-esteem improved, my self-confidence, my ability to not just think of myself as lazy, since I have more of the inattentive symptoms, lazy or not good enough or imposter syndrome, that all didn't go away, but was I was able to work on it. Yeah, that sounds like that'd be valuable. I know with me, um, I lose my keys all the time. And someone said, well, where are they? Where did you last leave them? I'm like, well, if I knew that, I would know where to go get them. But I, I can't remember that. And the other day I decided I'm going to focus 
on keeping track of my cup of coffee all day until it's gone. And that was just ridiculous. So I, I try to remember where it was. I really have to think really hard. Where, where did I go? Where did I leave it? And I'd feel so glad because I remembered it, but how much effort just to try and find this cup of coffee all day. And I thought everybody had this problem, but I guess not, I guess not everybody loses their cup of coffee and take several hours to drink it because they even forget that they had a cup of coffee. I just figured that was the way everyone drank it. That is exactly, I mean, I can tell you that I, and even I'm medicated, I go, I have therapy and I still can tell you that most days my, I drink my coffee cold because it's just, I lose it. I forget about it. And no matter what, you know, and no matter how, how much medication and how much, you know, executive skills training or mindfulness, which is also another thing that's helpful that I give my patients, you know, they still may struggle with some symptoms. Not everything is cured by, you know, pills or skills. And some of it is yeah. just recognizing that there is going to have to be some level of acceptance in daily and picking a daily, like you said, a daily habit or daily, you know, whatever is bothering you and really work on it to, to make it habit, then make it, then it becomes more automatic. And then it, it becomes less of a, like emotional draining component of your life. Yeah. So it sounds like there needs to be some self-forgiveness. Yeah. Compassion. Like, you know, I'm not doing the best you can. Yeah. And then to extend that to other people exactly. as well. Yeah. Okay, so, um, and you mentioned mindfulness, which is good, because I know that's something a lot of people are also working on as well anyway in their lives, but that this can be helpful with that. That's nice to hear. Yeah, and also knowing that it may be a little bit different than a neurotypical person, someone without ADHD or uh, someone who's not neurodiverse, and it may be a little bit different in the sense where the mindfulness may only last a few minutes as opposed to 10 to 15 minutes and may not be as consistent, maybe not every day of the week, but three days a week. And that way okay. it's kind of That's modifying it. So it works for you. And then I think you, you may have mentioned this, but so sometimes people have some benefits or they feel that they have benefits of having ADHD. Like a lot of people talk about their creativity is very good and they're able to come up with things very quickly. I mean, are, what else do you see? That yeah. So somewhat positive. Yeah. So I would say that it's a con it's controversial in terms of thinking of it as some people think of it as a super strength. Some of the real thought leaders in the field don't think of it as, you know, any, there's not that they, there's anything positive with ADHD and that, okay. but I, you know, I don't, I don't, my belief is either, I don't really have a strong belief. What I will say is that there, there, to generalize, I will, there are many adults with ADHD or adolescents who really do have similar strengths, and that is the ability to um, problem solve, to really work well under like extreme circumstances, under like a sense of urgency, to really be adaptable, to have amazing, like brilliant ideas. Not always be able to execute them, but just very creative, mm -hmm. amazing ideas. Um, you know, they're the CEOs of companies. They're the ones who were really, you know, really pushing along technology and development. They're, you know, they're the ones who you think are doing it all behind the scenes, whether it's raising a family and, you know, running a business. But, you know, they're really able to go with the flow and really kind of be flexible and be open-minded. Unfortunately, that comes with also kind of something at a cost. And usually it's their self-care or relationship care, things like that. Yeah, sure. Um.
Well, what about people who are, we've been talking about kids, what about people who are older, they may be their 70 or something like that, and this is just occurring to them right now, that maybe this is them, or they're, they're 80, what, I mean, should they just not worry about it if they're not working anymore anyway, or they're not in school? Yeah. How, how important is it to look into that? That's such a great question, and I will preface it with that, you know, ADHD does not stop after you graduate, it doesn't stop after you retire, it doesn't stop on the weekends. It also doesn't stop when you sleep. It affects every waking hour and, and even while you're sleeping. All of that restlessness, insomnia can be related to ADHD. So it is never too late to get assessed. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to start Adderall tomorrow, but there are many options for treatment. But just the assessment and the diagnosis can give you some insight into why you've been living a certain way. And even your partner and loved ones can start to understand things. Okay. That is valuable. That is very valuable. Yeah. And then, you know, you want to make your retirement years count. Exactly. Be as, as nice as possible. So that's good to know. So people can contact you if they want to. You have a website called drdarapsychiatry.com, and Dara is spelled D-A-R-A. And I will have the link in the show notes for you if you want to click on that. You can go check her out. But um, we they can also see their primary care. Yes. For a referral, right? Exactly. Yeah. Primary care. If you feel like you're not being heard or you're being dismissed, then move on to someone else. It's not, unfortunately, a field where there's that many folks who really are well assessed and aware, but I think that you just have to be your own advocate. Right. And that also brings up the point where you were saying sometimes you're not taking the right amount of medication. I've found with my kids, you just have to keep pushing that something's not right because it might not be the right medication for you, but there are other options. Yeah. I will say, yeah, I would say most of us, psychiatrists, me included, really have two things that we do wrong when it's prescribing, and that's overdosing at first and then underdosing long-term. So too high of a dose at first and then not optimizing the dose long-term. Okay. So we just need to speak up. Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, I want to thank you for your time. This was very valuable. Thank you. um, It sounds like a lot of people have a lot to learn about this and to know about it. So thank you for your time and helping us to understand. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pivot and Thrive. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed listening to my guest. If you know somebody who you think would make a great guest on the show, would you please contact me? You can go to my website at retirementpurposecoach.com and go down to the contact me section and let me know who I should be talking to. Also, if you are in need of a retirement coach yourself, you'd like some help figuring out what your path is or where you're supposed to be going every day with your life, you can contact me there and set up a free 15 to 20 minute consultation. I'd love to talk to you. Have a great day.